Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show coming to you on a late Thursday afternoon. Why am I so many days behind? Well, I'll get to that in just a sec. Thanks as always to all of you for sending in so, so many questions after a, wow, that doubleheader at Texas sure wasn't all that exciting to watch, but Man, do we have a lot of questions, well-deserved questions that have come in after this doubleheader at Texas Motor Speedway. So going to get through as many as I can. Know that there's definitely going to be a little bit of overtime involved here, but going to get to all that we can. Say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for supporting everything that we do here. Also, the amazing folks at the Justice Brothers Automotive Chemicals and Lubricants and then finally, torontomotorsports.com. Oh, our people, our people, north of the good old border here, who make so many fun things for us, T-shirts and stickers and you name it, all kinds of cool memorabilia there as well. Why are we recording this on a Thursday afternoon? Uh, well, I genuinely don't want to get into the details. We'll just say that we normally record uh, late, Monday afternoon, early Monday evening, and try and file it that night or Tuesday morning at the latest. Had a little bit of uh, something on the home front that took our attention all Monday afternoon into late Monday evening. And by the time we got home, uh, let's see, I think my wife and I looked at each other and laughed a little bit because it was 11 p.m., and we were taking our first bites of dinner, um, and actually some of the first things that uh, either of us had eaten all day long. So uh, everything's fine. Uh, I'm home. She's home. Everything's good. Just had some things that uh, took 100% priority. So as a result, I am more than a day behind on many things, and with uh, the normal way things work, got a window to do things in certain spots, you miss that as we did Monday evening, and there's lots of other stuff Tuesday, Wednesday, etc., to fill back in. Just getting to this here uh, later on Thursday. So, thank you for your patience. Why don't we say a couple of things that we really do need to say up front? Woke up Monday morning with a text uh, sharing the sad news that our dear, dear friend, Uncle Bobby, Bobby Unser, had died. Not a surprise for those of us who uh, knew the great inventor of air, water, uh, earth, the universe, the man who invented everything, the man who we love, who found no limits to the stretching of the truth, uh, our dear, dear Uncle Bobby. Uh, he'd been sick for a while. This wasn't something that was made public, but uh, we'd known, and prepared for it in advance we're even a little bit ready for it later last year so uh was really happy that bobby and i i don't remember when it was december january february somewhere in there he and i were able to spend a nice long while on the phone and it was just truly to reconnect say hello knowing that he'd been sick and uh just for me it's a bit of a chance to say farewell and I shared this on our sports car show. Typical Bobby. He didn't want to get off the phone. 
right? Uh, he did not want to stop talking about motor racing. And I, I swear it was about four times where I thought we were at that, all right, brother, love you, you know, hope uh, everything goes well, uh, kind of wrapping up the phone call. Oh, well, hey, what do you think about this thing? And what about that? And, you know, that arrow screen and so, I mean, and go through that. Well, all right, brother, again, love you so much. And and thinking you're kind of ramping down. Hey, what about? And so I don't even know how long the call was, but it was just one of those beautiful, typical, classic Uncle Bobby interactions. The man owned every moment of the conversation. He was gracious, funny, curious, brought great stories that applied to whatever it was that we were discussing. Infinitely curious about what was going on at that moment, that point in time in IndyCar, and about the future and who might do what and who could go where and all kinds of things. Roger, how's he doing? How's my old boss, Roger, doing running the, the speedway? Is it any better? And so on. It just... So, a dark and sad start to the week. Obviously, there's so many unique characters in the sport that we love. I think of some of you who might be newer, new-ish to IndyCar, and name whomever it might be. Alexander Rossi, Will Power, Pato Ward, whomever. And... You love them. They're the ones who you've grown up with or followed, might have been your first favorite, whomever it is. But modern driver, they're all so unique. And they're ones that hopefully you'll follow for the rest of your life, feel so invested in, almost feel like you have a a direct relationship with them, even if you might not get a chance to meet them. I think Uncle Bobby was that person for a lot of folks, even if they weren't, quote, fans of Uncle Bobby back in the day as a driver or whatever, he just connected everybody in our sport. He had some enemies for sure, but he had more people who loved him, tolerated him. Uh, He's the guy who just left you in a permanent state of facepalm with half of what he said, uh, laughing at the other trying to figure out the the more truthy parts of the whatever tale from the part where you know there might have been some embellishment just someone who like any of you with modern first heroes or fans whatever of certain drivers and whatnot just know that uncle bobby for those you know 50 and older uh boy uh, he's definitely royalty uh, for a lot of folks, and he brought so many eras together. His TV time, uh, calling so many races and so on, just wow. So I don't know how many of today's drivers would ever even want to try and measure up to Uncle Bobby in terms of personality, such a big personality, but at least we were thankful to have Bobby Unser on this planet for 87 years and, oh, man, just, you say this often about people that are lost. There's nobody like them, one of a kind. Those things are always true, but then you even start to think about those people, the one of a kinds, and you realize among them, they're true one of a kinds. Uncle Bobby certainly fits that. So, 
Uh, going to miss you, Uncle Bobby. Got his uh, funeral coming up here early next week. Um, Lisa Unser, his wife, just the sweetest of people. Uh, she's been amazing throughout this. Steve Shunk, good friend, and so many folks are just trying to help make things uh, go properly uh, for Uncle Bobby in that final farewell. So heavy heart there for sure. And this isn't a plug. I'm just sharing it with you because it is fact. We're fortunate to have Uncle Bobby on the show a number of times. There's some fun, insightful, hilarious, jaw-dropping content, all because of him, right? Just the stories that he told and the insights that he brought to us. So if you're a fan of Uncle Bobby, uh, you might take a look back through some of the episodes that he joined me on, and uh, I treasure them, treasure him. Uh, Farewell, Uncle Bobby. Holy cow. Probably... Some of my favorite memories in motor racing are attached to him. And he retired while I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. So, you know, I didn't get to see him race or remember much of him as a race car driver as a kid. Those memories don't jump out just because I was so young. But it was Robin, Robin Miller, who I met Bobby through. And some of my favorite memories in racing. So, modern career as a reporter the however many years before that as a mechanic and this that and the other among everything i've ever done in racing probably top five top ten would be sitting in the media center every year with my speed uh colleague robin miller obviously now for many years we're colleagues at racer but sitting in our little media row with Uncle Bobby coming in, and pardon my French here, but listening to Robin just roast the shit out of him for hours upon end, and Uncle Bobby giving it right back, and these two just going at it nonstop, the funniest stuff you could ever imagine. This is something where folks are trying to work. Uh, sorry, <laughs> there was there was something more important taking place. It was Robin and Uncle Bobby holding court, talking about everything in the past, uh, you name it, and just going at it as loud as can be, laughing without control or care. And it just become this congregation of three, five, ten, however many people come and stand around, circle around. I remember it got to like 15 to 20 people at some times. And being able to sit right next to Bobby and Robin as this is going on, and I'd join in a little bit, but, you know, these are two freaking icons just getting the knives out and tearing each other apart and going down memory lane like you wouldn't believe and this was an annual tradition and so every year as i'm thinking of packing everything up and getting the luggage and the cameras and the computer and all the stuff to fly out to indy i'm thinking of all the work to be done and covering this and that and the race and right in the middle of it every year thinking about no matter how much how hard, how many hours are required for this job that you do. There's going to be an afternoon during practice where Uncle Bobby's going to come up and he and Robin are going to hold court. And it will be apologies to the 33-plus drivers on track trying to get ready to qualify or whatever else. This will indeed be the best show taking place 
at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And except for those who are in the media center, and keep in mind that during practice, not a lot of folks show up uh, on the media side, but this was going to be the best thing going on. The cars on track couldn't even come close to it. And that in and of itself, some of my greatest memories year after year, seeing Uncle Bobby walking in with that little twinkle in his eye of, all right, sucker, we've got about a hundred rounds to go here. Let's get started. And, oh, talk about a blessing. Let's also talk about Robert Wickens getting back behind the wheel of a motor racing car. I hope we're going to talk to Robert here sometime soon to get a little bit more in-depth insight about that with Brian Herta Autosport at Mid-Ohio on Tuesday, driving a Hyundai uh, IMSA sports car, a a TCR, about 350 horsepower, front-wheel drive turbo with hand controls. And I don't know if you got a chance to read the interview that I did with Brian Herta, who was genuinely moved to tears, but uh, this was something pretty special. And this was also something that was pretty normal. Just talking about Robbie was right back. Like there was no like, oh, it was a good day for a guy dealing with hand controls. Brian would say, no, this was a good day for anybody. This is a good day for any top driver doing what they did. So um, hope to bring a little bit more on that. Hope we hear more about a rich, rich future for Robbie getting back behind the wheel in competition uh, what else can I tell you? Great to learn today that there will be a movie about Janet Guthrie's life. So that's just a win for sure. Got some cool stuff going on with our man, William Theodore Ribs. Willie T, I'm hoping uh, we're going to be able to announce that, uh, make some of those items available here ASAP through torontomotorsports.com and I think also marshallpruittpodcast.com so lots of stuff going on friends so with all that let's roll in a little music bed a little music bed not a big music bed a little music bed and I do appreciate those who send in asking the questions hey what is that music bed what band is it it isn't a band it's just a uh, a rights free music bed that I bought and used there's no band name uh, I don't even I think there's there's nothing like there's no go to this person's site and get it. Uh, there's no, it's just, yeah, something someone made and uploaded to be downloaded <laughs> by dummies like me who happen to like that little music bed. So yeah, sorry that I don't have any deep insight on where to go get it. Uh, other than that, why don't we roll? And thanks again to Jeremy Lorton. You, uh, I failed to mention that uh, you asked me to share favorite memory. Shared a couple. Well, shared a couple there, but um, Jim Kaiser. He opened things up with a, a bit of haiku, saying, "We lost a legend. Rest in peace, Uncle Bobby. Say hi to Senna." How funny, Uncle Bobby, who of course taught Senna how to drive, uh, taught the Lord how to drive. I'm sure. I'm sure Uncle Bobby right now is coaching the Lord on how to do things a little bit better because that's that'd be a very Uncle Bobby thing. Did you guys know? that at Texas Motor Speedway, a couple of drivers weren't super stoked about the available grip around that circuit. There's rumor that it was a one-lane track. Um, Sorry, a little bit of uh, sarcasm here. Oh, my friends, this has just become an annual thing, hasn't it? The boy, Texas has put on 
some of the most amazing IndyCar races the planet has ever seen. And wow, I sure wish we could see that again. But here's another year with the PJ1 NASCAR traction compound applied to the upper lane that is causing problems for IndyCars. So we tend to open the show with your questions on one of the bigger topics. This happens to be it. I'm going to blast through this as quickly as I can, and then uh, we'll wander on more from there. Uh, Our pal Wellington Nisley. Look at this. We're opening the show with a true first-timer. I love it. If you do send in a question for the first time, be sure to mention it just because I love it when we have folks like Wellington sending in good stuff. Says long-time listener, first-time questionnaire. Says, what do you do with Texas Motor Speedway? The track with its current abysmal surface is frankly unsuitable for IndyCar. Many of us want more oval races. Uh, They're the historic core of open-wheel racing in the U.S. Totally agree there, Wellington. Says, but the show at this track is counterproductive to energizing either the fervent or casual fans. Uh, Throws in uh, four items here. One, does TMS recognize that the PJ1 traction compound has polluted the upper racing line for IndyCar. Other than dragging tires, are they prepared to take any other action? At least reading what I believe is track president Eddie Gossage's private Twitter handle uh, or someone doing a really good Eddie Gossage impersonation, he made it really plain, Wellington, really plain to some listeners of the show, our pal Andy Merrick in particular, saying, hey, totally hear you. We want to have old-school IndyCar quality races. NASCAR is the big ticket here. That's the big financial draw. And they want the PJ1 on that second lane. So they're going to get it. This is... And we've known this. Eddie, no one actually had to come out and say that. We, this is just the known fact, right? The most valued customer slash presence at Texas Motor Speedway each year is NASCAR. Um, I often spin things like this out from sport and maybe go to music. This is the annual equivalent of, hey, we have a giant headlining act that comes to our arena. And then after them... There's another act that is popular, not nearly as popular, though, doesn't sell nearly as many tickets. So if the big headliner wants us to make some changes to the arena, that fits them and their concert, and we're just going to have to deal with those changes that maybe makes the next act that comes along not sound so great, not put on as great of a show. Sorry, uh, we're going to go with the one that truly keeps the lights on, keeps us fed, keeps this place working. It's the uncomfortable part, Wellington, it, and it really is. It's just the having to swallow the fact that the series that we love, that we talk about each week for however many hours on this dumb little podcast of mine, fifth anniversary, by the way, is Saturday. Um, they're the number one. We at IndyCar are number two. And as long as the number ones ask for this thing that they feel makes their show better and negatively impacts IndyCar, they're going to do it. And be really honest, 
I'd do the same thing. I'm not saying it's a happy thing, but I totally understand. As a business, if the people who make you survive want something, you're not really in a position to say no. And so is that fair to IndyCar? We could run down the whole line. No, isn't fair, doesn't deserve it, all these things. We've seen, as we discussed not too long ago in the show, about using the tire dragon, right? Dragging around Firestone tires on the upper lane or wherever. That was tried a couple years ago when we are at Phoenix. Didn't really do anything. I don't think that's so much of an option for us. Uh, Had someone else say, well, hey, if PJ1 is the enemy because it's on the upper lane and it doesn't jive, it doesn't work with our tires, right? And they're, the NASCAR Goodyears are very different than the IndyCar Firestones. Um, why not just coat the bottom lane too so at least it's uniform? Again, not really the angle that we're thinking fits us so well. There's one other part. I think many of you may know this, but in case you don't, I'll just share it. There is an active effort, has been an active effort by Texas to clear the PJ1 off of that second lane. So as we saw last year, there was an active effort to get rid of it. The goal, you would think, was, well, hey, if we can kind of scrub and get rid of all this stuff on the second lane, in theory, It'll be matchy, matchy with the bottom lane, with the main low lane. So clear, clean the top of the PJ1. Then, in theory, it's equal to what's below. So IndyCar drivers could go high and low. As we found last year, the general number that we've heard was somewhere between 10 and 15% less grip up top. So while that might not sound like a lot, 10 to 15% out of 100 these cars are going so fast and are on such a bit of a knife edge that that is actually a giant different difference in traction awaiting those right side tires as they might venture up there. And so whether it's scrubbing it off and having two different lanes at two different grip values uh, to how's this? I don't know what the answer is. So I've heard some other things. Um, Wellington's second question fits into it a little bit. It says, does IndyCar recognize that the show has suffered? I would have to hope that provided folks watched the race with their eyes open and also maybe took a look at social media, I sure would have to believe it is a known thing that in terms of sheer entertainment spectacle wow, tune in, and boy, it's going to be the good old Texas it used to be. I I would say that other than Pato being insane, <laughs> right, and trying to pass people below the white line at the bottom of the track, getting up into the PJ1 goo and holding on for dear life and almost crashing but not a couple times, if it weren't for Pato doing Pato things, oh, uh, boy, we really might have even louder complaints about the show not being so great. So I, I have to believe, Wellington, they're fully aware that very few people other than Chip Ganassi Racing, Scott Dixon, Pato Award, and Aaron McLaren SP went home happy uh, after that doubleheader. Uh, you mentioned, if so, if they know that 
If IndyCar knows that the show suffered, is there anything they can do with the current specs to remediate the issue? Um, this is also considering your excellent article about the cart debacle in 2001. Thank you for that. Yet again, a great question. And having been there for many of the DW12 era races, let's try lower down force, let's try this, let's try that. IndyCar has, I don't think, really ever stopped trying to find the right mix of downforce without turning it into a pack race where everyone's just glued to each other's attenuator and unable to get away. Um, I don't know what else they would do, though. And that's where I think this strikes me as something that... The track has made the thing that we've always known plain. NASCAR is number one. We're going to do whatever they want. And the thing they want is this traction compound that really disrupts your turn here, IndyCar, and turns it into basically a single lane event, except for when Pato loses his mind. Um, as police come flying by here. Uh, I don't know if you heard that on the mic. Anyways, we've got that. We've got the, well... Texas also wants to get back, hopes we can find something. Everyone would agree with that. We have to believe that IndyCar knows. Yeah, a bit of a snoozer. Uh, what do you do? Well, IndyCar has been trying stuff for years. A little more downforce, a little less downforce. Add this, take this away, try these things. I mean, where do you go from here? That's where things get frustrating. There's a desire, I think, by everyone for the quality of the race to improve for it to have more passing, the ability for cars to not be glued to one lane, uh, especially in turns one and two. Okay. Do you go to short oval specification? Bolt on your road course front rear wings, take that top element off the back, but do you go to a gateway type configuration, worldwide technologies raceway spec? And all of a sudden, you're doing, I don't know what the number is, 198 miles an hour around there, 202, 203, because you're just carrying so much downforce and drag that, I mean, we're truly just aero limited. Um, I, I, I think at that point, you get pack racing for sure. I don't know if all that extra downforce makes going up onto that second lane possible, even though, again, it would have less grip than the bottom lane, but... Are we piling on so much crushing downforce that shoot <laughs> you could ride around on the safer on the you know vertical on the safer barrier? I don't know. Is that a good show? I don't know. Would having to go to a extreme on specification going to a mile and a half, you know, that's a big oval. Using small oval arrow just to keep the racing okay so to allow people to go too wide in some places or three but at a lower speed and probably not able to really break away from each other i don't know that's the thing wellington that's the head scratcher want better solution not clear indycar for whatever criticisms that get leveled in their direction it's not as if they haven't poured in a ton of time to try and think about this and come up with solutions and try different things, as we've mentioned. So where I wonder, where I truly wonder here, 
wrap on this just a sec. Uh, have we run our course there? Not because the track is incapable, but we know that they're going to need to do the thing that is most important to their number one client. If there's no, we're gonna, we found something type option. Do you just keep going back? I know. I think Roger Penske has mentioned how important it is. The tracks are incredibly important to IndyCar. That's not a question. But your third item here, fans seem to be taking notice based on what looked like a meager turnout both days. How do we get butts in the seats? Free tickets in 2022? Uh, And then you close with what I was starting to get into. If Texas Motor Speedway is no longer viable, is it time to revisit some other ovals like Richmond, Kentucky, Atlanta, Kansas? Yeah. Um, I don't know what the answer is. And I am genuinely nowhere close to being the smartest person to come up with an answer. I do know, though, that IndyCar is loaded with very smart and passionate people from a managerial side to the technical side. There's no lack of talent or desire to make this work. The fact that year after year it feels like we haven't or can't in this 2018-plus universal arrow kit era, the, the arrow screen era as well, Prior to this, with the manufacturer arrow kits, with all kinds of downforce options, right? Just talking about what we got now, this current thing that we have. Can't go back to 2015 specifications because that bodywork no longer exists for the cars to use. For what we have right now, it's been a stinker for a little while. The PJ1 has only worsened things. We've learned they're not planning to take the PJ1 away. Do we just start to live up to that definition of insanity? Come back next year and hope? I don't know. Um, Hope has never sounded like a business plan that Penske Entertainment would rely on. So I want IndyCar to be there for a really long time and to put on great shows. And for all the fans and drivers to go home happy safe, exhausted, mentally, physically, right? Let's go put on an amazing show where you leave everything on the table. Folks can't believe the 12-wide run to the finish line. I'm kidding. You'd need about eight cars in the grass, but we've seen amazing things there. If we can't get back to that, I don't know if the track or any track deserves to just continually be on the schedule in an era where there's a lot of entertainment to offer people. And if you're serving up a known snoozer year after year at one of those places, I don't know if it's in any series best interest. As I said more than once, one of my two home tracks, frankly, both of my home tracks, Laguna Seca and Sears point. Uh, uh, I don't know if either of them really offered great IndyCar racing. Definitely. Sonoma, which I consider to be my real home track, not at all. I mean, it was a procession, boring as hell. In my mind, I'm screaming the whole time, I want my home track to win, to just be the center of love and affection by the IndyCar world. And year after year, well, the race is over Saturday late afternoon. Once we're done with the Firestone Fast 6, by and large, we're done. 
We know how tomorrow's going to play out unless someone goofs up, something breaks, whatever. Assuming nothing happens, eh, race is over once qualifying is done. You don't continue coming back to that because it's boring and nobody likes that that I know of. Laguna Seca, I hope things are a bit better. I don't know why they would be. The track is just as low grip as it was last time. There's infrequent passing at best. I hope something changes. I don't know how it would, but look, my home track fell off the calendar. There are multiple reasons. It wasn't just the quality of racing. It was a sanction fee that was desired and a few other things. But if you just had to vote on do we go back based on quality of the show, I would have to vote no for my own home track. So it's not a personal thing. Obviously, if I would vote to not go back to my own home track, uh, there's nothing personal about Texas. I've seen amazing stuff there. If we can't get back to amazing, you raise some uh, great names of great tracks here. Uh, Thanks for sending it in, Wellington. Uh, And also your kind note here, best wishes for you and your bride and hope I might see you at the Speedway this year. I think I've mentioned on the show I won't be able to attend uh, the 500 this year. We had hoped that in my wife's recovery from uh, multiple significant medical issues that we would be at a place where I could do that and could fly out for practice and qualifying, come home, then go back for the race, knowing that she would uh, be able to care for herself 100% without me here. We're getting there without a doubt. All positives, just not there yet now. So just makes me getting on a plane and, Going and playing race car is not quite quite something we're able to do. We take one more quickly on Texas from Neil Clark. Another first time, long time. Look at that. We're opening the show. Two folks sending in for the first time. I love it. Oh my goodness. And we got one after that too. Ah, different topic though. Uh, Neil says maybe technically the third time, but you didn't answer the other two. So maybe my third time's a charm on getting my question onto the show see and i also tell folks if you really wanted to answer give me a little bit of guff and i'll do my best uh this is not sure what the covid situation was in texas but the crowd looked pretty dismal do you know what the percentage was allowed into the race this is based on the attendance and the issues with passing on the track um i don't think they can resolve is texas going to be another oval that falls off the schedule so it'd be sad uh since they've been such a supporter of the series but we just don't see the exciting racing that we once did yeah so your part about this, Neil, I don't have the actual percentage uh, on how many fans were or weren't allowed. Uh, I seem to recall Texas being pretty forthright and saying, hey, we're going to kind of get back to uh, normal life here. So I don't have a specific answer for you. If there was a percentage maximum, we'll mention that it did look pretty light in terms of fans. So I hope the answer is that there was some form of strict mandate in limitation on the amount of fans. And we saw that they were at 100% of that limitation. So why don't we go to a positive place to close and just tell ourselves that is indeed what happened. Royce Moeller. First time, long time. Look at that. Three in a row. It's crazy. Even though it took you three tries, Neil, I apologize. You know I suck, but I appreciate it. Uh, Says, do you see any potential benefit for IndyCar to make the switch to run Rovals 
with the success that NASCAR has had in recent outings. Says I understand that ovals are part of IndyCar's heritage, but with the seemingly dwindling excitement, barring the Indy 500 of oval races, would this be something that could reinvigorate interest in the series? I would throw in Gateway for sure. Worldwide Technologies Raceway is one that's put on some pretty compelling content as well. Iowa had until it fell off the calendar. I mean, that was almost always going to be a guaranteed blast. So, But knowing that there aren't many right now, could Rovals be a thing? I mean, potentially. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on which Rovals, Royce. No, Charlotte probably stands out as a, a really popular Roval. Obviously, we have Daytona International Speedway. I don't know if that would draw. I don't know what kind of draw that would be, but it's such a massive facility that anything less than, you know, three-quarter packed house is going to look dismal, tiny, which would only be received negatively. Oh, look, IndyCar couldn't draw a crowd. So that might be a a bit of a a bomb uh, they'd be stepping into if NASCAR ever even let them run. But... Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. Uh, Not a lot of great history leaving Charlotte for the IRL. Um, Pretty sad end to their time there. Don't know if that is a door that would be opened at all. So, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say no to the concept but I'd say there'd have to be a pretty strong belief that there would be a sizable and invigorated crowd waiting if it were to be considered. Um, yeah, I hadn't really given that much thought. I think it did go through my head in a fleeting capacity, Royce, but I wonder, though, does IndyCar just try and reestablish itself in some places that once were pretty okay for it. the art of open wheel racing, uh, as Wellington mentioned, Richmond, Atlanta. Uh, I don't know if Kentucky or Texas, I don't know if either one is better chance than the other of drumming up a good crowd, but I do like the idea of, can we get Richmond? I loved Atlanta. The limited number of times that I went there. What are some of the places where you go? Hey, there is some tradition here that we can call back on and say, yeah, we've been there. might have been 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever, but hey, uh, we do have a little bit of something we can draw upon to get you to come out. But um, I think I think, just true straight-up ovals in doubling the amount, I think that would be my first place to look. If there are any struggles there, who knows? Maybe a roval as an experiment. Maybe that could be a little bit fun. Eric Harkrader, how you doing, Eric? It uh, says, MP, what more can you tell us about Robert Wicken's effort to get back in a car? Uh, says, uh, I think there might be some more details before you record. Amazing story. Love to hear more color behind it. Uh, you also say, any chance any car actually uses this amazing story to help the visibility of the series? Hmm, that's a good one, Eric. Taking a sip of coffee. I apologize. I shouldn't be doing that uh, late afternoon, early evening. This test, definitely big thanks to Michael Johnson, uh, who helped uh, make this happen. Michael, who'd been on the road to Indy for many, many years before switching over to IMSA and sports cars. Uh, Michael been 
paraplegic since he was 12, I believe, a crash uh, in a dirt bike motor racing, uh, motorcycle racing accident. So had a car that was, frankly, just ready to go right away for Robbie to drive. And that was not only phenomenal on Michael's part, but you know, th- this is a big day, big opportunity. This was kept on lockdown for a long time. Uh, I would love to tell you I knew about it however far in advance. I didn't. I only knew about it a couple days in advance. Um, wrote about this extensively, myself and others on Racer, so I don't want to rehash all that. Would recommend you read some of it. Some of it's not bad. Uh, about the day, Robbie's emotions, just all the things. So might just look at that. I won't delve too deep into that here. We'll say, though, that what I love about this is he broke through that big question mark of a mental barrier. Can I still do it? Not a question of do I want to still do it, but can I still do it? Didn't put this in one of the... Things that I wrote, the interview with uh, Brian Herta, Brian Herta Autosport made their Hyundai Veloster N, one of their cars, uh, the TCR class available for Robbie. By no means as big as Robbie's crash. Recovery by no means is anything close to it. But Brian at least knows what it's like to severely injure yourself, be sidelined for a long time, and then have to come back and push through that mental barrier. As a IndyCar rookie in 1994, I think it was Toronto, huge crash, broke the tub, broke his leg, like broke his leg, like, yeah, done for the rest of the season. It was a long time before he got back into a car, a very painful rehabilitation. He, to a much lesser extent, still had to go through that same thing that Robbie did. Hey, man, the last time I was in one of these things, it hurt me pretty bad. And I've had to go through hell to get back. And, I mean, I hope nothing's changed, right? I don't think I'm going to be afraid when I get to turn one. But, you know, you got to do it to find out. And luckily, knowing what Robbie would be going through from his own experience, I think it was just the perfect team to do this with. And Brian, as most of you know, some of you hopefully everybody knows, and if not, I'll tell you now, I don't know if you will come across a team owner in IndyCar with a bigger heart. Not saying that there are many team owners who have small hearts. I'm just saying that of all the team owners, that guy's got the biggest heart of everyone. Most empathetic, most this, most that. Just a perfect guy to be there, make this happen for Robbie. And so I think what we should take away from this looking to the future this technology exists and has been proven in smaller open wheel cars sports cars for sure we know that alex zanardi has used uh similar things not all the same but similar things as well in terms of the hand control bits would i say it's more realistic to see robbie continue his racing career at least right away early i should say early in a shorter time frame in sports cars i'd say so Uh, whether it is with brian Herta's team or similar 
I think that there's a stronger chance of that happening in a shorter time frame than trying to develop something, say, in Indie Lights and get him back up to speed there where it's fast but not IndyCar crazy fast and build the rhythm there. Then step into an IndyCar. Knowing Robbie, he'd just want to go straight to IndyCar. But nonetheless, I think if he were to come back to racing, I think as part of Brian's team, something in IMSA, something with hand controls there might happen first. Coming to the topic of IndyCar, uh, building interest, drawing more fans to want to follow and all these great things, visibility, Eric, just know that uh, IMSA and I would imagine IndyCar as well are fully aware of Robbie's ability to inspire people how many headlines he got on Tuesday and Wednesday, all the social media impressions. I mean, this is a pretty massive bump for Hyundai uh, to have him in their car. How do I say this without sounding frustrated? Because I've said this on the show more than once. Robbie's been ready to do this for a while. (laughs) Uh, I am unaware at least on the open wheel side of anyone making an effort to put him into an open wheel car shared on the show more than once yet again, that there was something afoot with Honda when uh, the Aero McLaren SP team, the drove four was affiliated with Honda, the switch away from Honda. I know as you might understand, brought an end to that. Has there been anyone that I know of to step up and say, all right, well, good Lord, uh, let's get this guy back in a car. Let's do this for him, for us. This is going to be great for Robert Wickens, but let's look at the sheer and obvious benefit to IndyCar. Um, Talk about, we would think, every major national outlet having some sort of interest. This I I would think of as just a marketing investment, Eric, where you go, okay, we're going to put in X amount of millions and we're probably going to get back double, triple, quadruple, if not more. You would think that that would occur to someone and make that happen. It hasn't. I think what we might see now is IMSA realizing that, oh, well, we didn't really know uh, having Robert Wickens in our series was an option, but seeing how this uh, kind of sort of took over the news cycle for a couple days, um, maybe we need to work really hard to make that happen. So we will have to keep tracking this and see if it develops in the direction that I think many of us hope it will. But in action and Robbie being ready, and having nothing to drive, no one actively fighting for him to be a race car driver again. Um, I'm hoping Tuesday's test has inspired some folks who could have acted beforehand to maybe realize, oh, uh, if we don't, maybe our rival in that sports car series will be the one to make this happen and reap the benefits. Again, just being blunt, there's a absolute value attached to having Robert Wickens 
in your racing series. He's a race car driver. Uh, I would say as a supremely talented one, he's going to go where the best opportunity is presented. Maybe the, I'm hoping the clock is ticking. Uh, Robbie Berggren, Marshall, who is more impressive this past weekend? Jack Harvey running top five after being Mr. Invisible last year. That's a little harsh, but, uh, or Scott McLaughlin getting a podium and a top 10 with testing, uh, being his only oval experience or Pato winning his first race there. Love this first one. Uh, I might lean towards Jack and I know I just had him on the show and he's a, you know, sweetheart of a kid. And how do you not love him? Same with Scotty, same with Pato. So, you know, they're all equally loved. Scott finishing well at Texas, where I believe he did his first ever overlaps. Um, having done the Indy open test, having done another run at Indy before that, um, being as smart as he is, as talented as he is and driving for Roger Penske in a Penske entry. I'm not saying any of that negates his achievement. It's phenomenal. Holy crap. I also have to look at potential and say, Scott finishing in the top three on Saturday Big surprise due to this being his first ever oval race. Of course, man, the guy had so much uh, in his corner to make it happen that it, it was possible. Pato winning. Did I think he was going to win his first race at Texas? No, I thought it was going to be a little earlier in this year, maybe a little bit after more road to street course base. But, you know, the kid's balls of fire approach certainly paid off and it's amazing to see him win there but pato winning yeah not at all he's the one we expected to have the breakthrough this year jack and the freaking meyer shank racing team running top five in the championship through saturday night they probably if not for that right rear wheel bearing failure we'd be talking about fourth or fifth in the standings right now I mean, that's the one that I sure as heck couldn't have called. Of these three, I tend to just lean Robbie on the, what did you think was realistic? And someone like Scotty who showed, do not underestimate me in his first real test. I know that he did that, whatever, one day, I think, at Sebring, but at the uh, Circuit of the Americas Spring Training Last year, right, he showed us instantly, do not underestimate me. You don't know me. I don't have a lot of experience doing this. Like, I really don't have a lot of experience doing this. But uh, stand up and recognize. Put some respect on my name, he said in that beautiful Kiwi twang. He didn't, but I imagine he did, in my brain at least. Um, Pato, again, already covered him off. Jack, he was among my biggest question marks coming into this season. As he mentioned on our guest show yesterday, this is a contract year for him. I've known that. Uh, so I'm sure others have known that as well. This is without a doubt the year for him to give Mike Shank and Jim Meyer a reason to slide a contract extension in front of him. And you mentioned him being Mr. Invisible last year. I don't know if I'd be that harsh, but I would not totally disagree with you, Robbie. There were a few too many races where, whether it was Jack, 
whether it was the team, could be a pit stop, could be strategy, could be a setup, could be a number of things. Uh, uh, not, not as present as you would hope. This has been a revelation of a year, start to a year for them. And we'll all just, let's forget the mechanical failure on Sunday. Looking at how the weekend went for him, two races in a row, uh, some different players to run with as well, and he's right there fighting like mad. We already know about the verbal dust-up with Graham and not being too kind to his teammate Alexander Rossi. But I was not fully convinced as to whether Jack would be the guy this season to step up and say, yes, I'm going to give you a reason in the final year of my contract to hold on to me. Only talk on the first four races. We're not even at the exact 25% mark of the calendar, but I would say he's definitely shown that there is a big uptick in performance, competitiveness, fiery, everything, working better than ever with his race engineer, Andy Listis. Uh, Just down the line, uh, the guy has shown us that, yes, there was indeed another gear to grab and some more speed to deliver, and he has been fiery and unapologetic as well. I love that. I love it. So I think for that alone, Robbie, that's what that's why Jack stands out. But I cannot ignore Scotty's podium and his first oval race. It's amazing. But I look at any Penske driver and say, okay, no matter where you are on the experience level or experience uh level sorry y'all um there's phenomenal potential within that vehicle for you to get a really quality result out of it uh with what jack's been doing the marshank racing's been doing this is more than i expected and i'm so happy to see that they're doing it uh let's go to daniel summersgill uh does any car need to look at its start procedures on the ovals seems no lessons were learned from the last start line pileup gateway last year uh, where cars slowed before the green concertina occurred towards the back uh mentioning that alexander rossi also got caught up on that one too i think yes he did um yeah so oh there's some fun uh twittering uh with our man rossi yeah what i don't fully grasp here daniel is where indy car positions itself as an authority wasn't there for the driver's meeting feel confident though in saying same kind of expectations were placed this is where we expect you to start speeding up we want you to maintain similar gap that we've used for a long time between the rows so on and so forth we would have to assume it'd be there'd be no reason for any lack of information, of expectations to be downloaded to the drivers, the team manager sitting in there with them, etc. And yet we have this problem that happened on Sunday. Uh, can I just throw in real quickly that I, after watching the replays, I'll admit I don't fully understand how... Pietro got into the back of our French fry, Sebastian Bourdais. I know that there was a whole talk of the everything you mentioned here, the speed up, slow down, concertina effect. 
I just don't know if I saw anything that Sebastian did or whomever it was in front of him that was vastly different all of a sudden to lead Pietro to accelerate towards them or them, say, come back into him. I'm not claiming this is accurate. I'm just sharing what I saw from multiple replays. It appeared like Pietro started accelerating when others weren't. I know, I think I saw a tweet from his team owner, co-team owner, entrant uh, Rick Ware, saying he had nowhere to go, etc., etc. That all could be a 1,000% true, and I totally did not see what I thought I saw. It just didn't appear like Sebastian and whomever else went backwards hard and Pietro had nowhere to go. It looked like Pietro was trying to get a little bit of a, I don't want to call it a jump, but do as every driver wants to do, get a really good start. Um, So again, could be wrong. I'm sure folks will inform me that I am if I am, but that stood out to me as a little bit weird. Um... I don't know if I have an immediate answer for this. I know that a friend of the show and just an old friend of mine, Jerry Hildebrand, was on a, another podcast suggesting a couple of fixes, potentially a longer gap either between the rows or a single file start or some other things. I just tend to fall, Daniel, in the area of, you know what, how many... Oval starts has IndyCar done or NASCAR or whatever. How many starts have been done over the last X amount of years where we've had big start line or starting crashes coming to the green flag and six cars do not cross the start finish line uh, with all parts and pieces attached or under their own power or otherwise. Some of them didn't even get there. Um, How many of those have happened? I, I don't know, and I'm talking to start the race. I'm not talking about a restart at wherever, lap 189. I'm just saying, here we are, lined up, rows to two, let's go motor racing. Um, we certainly remember the ones that happened. It doesn't feel like it is an epidemic, though. And so that's where my mind falls to in things like this. It's a big deal. Some people's days were screwed. Some people's seasons were ruined even further. Rossi, for example, man, you talk about a hole to dig out of. Totally unfair. Not his fault, period. Uh, We then have the question of why didn't they qualify? We're going to get to that in just a sec. Um, But I look at this, Daniel, and just come to a conclusion of it does not happen often enough to warrant a wholesale change of process, as I view it. The behavior of a pole sitter or a person next to them on the front row, accelerating, slowing down, farting around. I just believe there needs to be some sort of hardcore message sent by the series. And I'm not saying they didn't. Maybe they did. I don't know. I wasn't in the meeting. They don't invite us to the meeting. I wasn't there to go to it to begin with. But anyways, I just have to wonder... This series is controlled by people. There are people come together in a room and they are in charge of controlling the race. They're in charge of setting the expectations before the race. If there's something seen where 
person in the front row, second row, whatever, is doing some form of trickery that jeopardizes the start of the race, possibly even triggers a crash, I would think there needs to be some sort of precedent set. We have a lot of cameras pointed at a lot of things. Replay, seeing did anybody start monkeying around? We have a lot of data, too. You can parse out pretty quickly who accelerated early, who didn't, who's on the brake, who wasn't. Not saying that a penalty has to be handed out right away, but hey, if you do this, we're going to catch you. You cause problems, we're going to see it because we're going to be cleaning it up under yellow. And guess what? Pole sitter, second place, third place, whatever it is, um, you're going to come have a little talk with us on pit lane once we go green. And we might, if we're able to, get to that and apply that penalty right away, or it might take a little bit. One way or the other, if you do things to ruin other people's days, we're going to make sure yours is ruined too. And this comes from the point of, this is the start of the race. This is the one time we do double file, etc., etc. If you're pulling stuff here, thinking that how you behave right now on this start of the first lap is going to be something that you have to pull trickery to get an advantage because you'll never have a chance to get by. And I know we're talking about Texas. I know passing wasn't easy, but there are pit lanes. There's some options. If you're going to try and do this and there's going to be a negative effect, well, come join us for five laps. Let's make it 10. So that way there's no chance you're going to get them back. And we'll keep doing it as long as folks decide, yeah, I'm going to try and game the system. All we're trying to do here is get the race started cleanly and safely. I realize it's a competitive environment. Everyone wants to have an advantage over the next man or woman. This is the one time, I believe, where you place full expectation on the participants in the vehicles to have a bigger picture in mind. We don't want to look like idiots. We don't want to be on sports centers, the ones who couldn't even get the race started before we started running into each other. Don't make me penalize you. Get across that start-finish line. Let us wave the green flag. Have at it. Before you cross that line, don't even try it. If we have to start modifying all kinds of other things to try and safeguard against, call it bad behavior, not seeing the big picture, I think we're addressing the symptoms instead of the core problem. Uh, IndyFan21 says, Marshall, when multiple cars are involved in a wreck, uh, like we had on Sunday, how does IndyCar determine the finishing order? Uh, ask, because I'm pretty sure Connor Daly's car traveled more distance than any other involved, yet Daly's credited with last place uh, and 24th. I don't know. Uh, I, I always kind of thought similar to your line of thinking, that being, well, where you are ending up physically on the track, well, that's we're going to count the order of where you are. I realize I'm sure I can read the rule book and give you a very sharp answer. If I was better at my job, IndyFan21, I would have read your questions in advance and prepped for all of them. As some of you know, uh, it's not really uh, something I have uh, the time to do, at least right now. 
So I don't have the answer. But like you, I did find it a little bit odd. I wonder if it was a case of, well, uh, everyone was kind of crashed and settling into that position and someone barreled through uh, as the window of opportunity closed. And so uh, we'll just say you were a little late to that party. Therefore, you get 24th. I don't know if that's the thinking. I'd like to think it is because I don't like to think I'm that stupid and don't actually know the answer. But that's the truth. Uh, I forgot my password. Okay. From Reddit. It says, hey, MP. In the last set of laps at Texas to the electric boogaloo, uh, Pato's radio consistently fed him guidance about tucking in and waiting. Pato chose to make his move early around New Garden and uh, took it to the top step of the podium. Are there repercussions for ignoring your radio when it pays off? What about when it doesn't and you run out of gas or, or lose the tires on, say, the white flag lap? I'm going to apply the uh, the movie Driven um, to this here. I forgot my password. Okay. One of the great parts of that movie, as I wrote my viewer's guide, is what everyone from his brother slash driver manager to you name it, telling Jimmy Bly what, how to do it, when to do it, why to do it. Pass him. Don't pass him. Go left. Go right. Step on the brake. Press the throttle. Shift. Um, that doesn't happen. You do get guidance, though. Talking about Pato's strategist, also Air McLaren SP's president, El Presidente, Taylor Kyle. Um, giving him guidance on, hey, be patient, tuck in, wait. There's no need to go now. I would say don't think of those as instructions because they aren't. Uh, there's nothing unless it's Roger Penske, basically, and that's just because of the power he wields. Maybe Chip Ganassi. Um, maybe Michael Andretti. I don't know. Chip, Chip, probably, yeah. His drivers are all afraid of him. Um, Roger, for sure. Uh, they're all afraid of him. I don't know about Michael, but uh, he's you know nicer of a guy. But anyways. Kidding aside, there's really no such things in terms of instructions when it comes to racing, right? I'm not talking about the middle portion of the race, for example, where everyone's just farting around at suboptimal speed, saving fuel, just trying to stretch fuel so they can do the rest of the race on one stop. At that point, you are definitely listening. Hey, there's nothing to compete for here. Sit behind so-and-so, cruise, need to make your your fuel number per lap, and we're just, right? That's that. Now, granted, if the person's going so slow in front of you where you see there's folks just stacking up behind you, probably, hey, I need to get around them. I'm sorry, but look, it's either that or I'm going to get overwhelmed, and I don't even want to be close to the people behind me because I don't trust some of them. Who knows? little bit of an exception to consider if that happens. But for the most part, that's just the, the strategery part of the race. Cruise, there's a mission, get to that last stop, then we can go. We were into that phase, obviously. And so still trying to make a fuel number, still trying to make sure everything's on the good side before you really unleash things. Really what was being passed down from Taylor to Pato was advice suggestion a thought of how to administer the closing part of the race uh what was it lap 225 226 whatever the number was when pato went by joseph out of uh, 248 laps 
I could see how there was a feeling like, I don't know if we need to go this early, right? What if we do go by and we do, as you mentioned, burn up tires a bit or consume stuff, and all of a sudden we start falling into their clutches? I might make a similar suggestion, if not the identical suggestion, if I was in Taylor's role. Hey, man, it looks like we got something they don't. Uh, I can see your throttle traces. I can see everything you're doing. Look, it's clear that we got something. I don't know if we need to spring it on them yet. And I don't know if you're waiting the last three laps to try and do it, but, you know, 20-plus laps to go, I could see why Taylor wasn't encouraging Pato to go around. The same time, man, you know, sometimes that pony just wants to ride. <laughs> and uh, Pato is ready to go. Uh, got tired of it. There was no need, based on fuel or anything else, to sit back and just cruise a little bit. It's time to go. And he did, and he disappeared. And it was a beautiful thing. So just in this situation or situations like this, you also have to realize that that voice on the radio, it's it's a coach. You know, They might be trying to call the plays. They're not on the field, though. And the best quarterbacks are going to call audibles, going to improvise a little bit when they see it's in the best interest of winning. In this case, Pato knew, look, I'm good, right? We, we can go the rest of the way with what we got, and I'm going to be all right. And I'm tired. I want to go, and I am. And that's his personality. This is a guy who's going to do that and keep doing it, and it's not always going to work out. And there are going to be days, as you mentioned, where Taylor or whomever is going to be looking at him a little side-eyed like, really? <laughs> uh, work with us here. But I didn't see anything out of bounds on this whatsoever. Uh, I'll be frank, I'm surprised he didn't go sooner. Uh, he, he There was some restraint being shown. So, yeah. I won't name a name. But I can tell you that there's one high-profile winning driver whose team probably wishes he did this. Said, hey, okay, cool, I'm in a good place, going to have a good finish, you know, okay, cool, great, lapping, you know, not wringing the car's neck totally, um, you know, it's going to be a good points day. And the team saying, hey, you know, we don't need to attack the person right now. Uh, there's one high high name in the sport where i bet a lot of money that their team would be jumping up and down just smiling and high-fiving each other if that driver totally ignored them ripped around the car in front of them went on to take the victory um so when you got it with someone like pato yeah i don't think you really say anything after the race uh if things do go sideways though you might coach him up a little bit. Uh, let's see. Ryan Terpstra, Jeremiah Morrell, two members of the Prude listening group. What do I call you guys? It's not a collective, right? That's used by uh, some other friends that have a audio-based show and have active uh, listeners who love to chop it up and do stuff, activities, um, like Step Brothers. Activities. Um, what do I call you guys? The Pruday something. Fill in that part for me so I can describe you all correctly. They're the kind of fun, crazy, cultish uh, subgroup of listeners to the show who get together and uh, 
amuse each other endlessly. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says, can you come up with a better method to set the grid than entrant points uh, two races into the season when they don't have qualifying? For what it's worth, I would have set the grid for Sunday based on fastest race laps on Saturday. That's an interesting one. Uh, Jeremiah Morrell, similar thing. Lack of qualifying this weekend expanded the gap between the front and the rear of the field. Two extremely difficult passes, um, or the ext- I'm sorry, the extreme difficulty in passing further exacerbated the issue of all the tracks to not have qualifying for the two races. Doing it at Texas, painful to watch. The fortunes of Tony Kanon, who won practice, Alexander Rossi, Connor Daly were all directly impacted. Why would the series not find the time to get a qualifying session in on Sunday? As the product suffered because of it. Cars started in the back. Uh, all weekend that were obviously fast enough to compete towards the front of the field. This is what Mr. Rossi was highlighting that he was so displeased with after being taken out. His point being, if we'd had qualifying after sitting around for a lot of the day doing nothing, local start time, I believe, was 4 p.m. in Texas. Uh, we There's nothing, no on-track anything. Um, if we'd had qualifying... You know, he was not suggesting that his uh, his number twenty seven Honda was going to be on the pole, but I think we could assume Andretti cars and qualifying on an oval like that tend to do fairly well. So he probably wouldn't have been caught up in that same crash towards the back. If 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 right, if qualifying had been held, if we didn't have this accordion effect, concertina effect, if if if, if you throw in a lot of ifs, you have to agree that. Qualifying was held. Alexander, assuming there was no crashing in front of him, if he was on row three or four or the front row, who knows, would have left him in a safer place. But the bigger question here, why not? I don't really know. I can get an answer. I mean, I, I you know, getting answers in this stuff, that's not the hard part. It's the understanding. It's finding the rationale. So rain lack of qualifying for Saturday's race. Well, then we're just going to not have qualifying all weekend. Got it. Understood. Turns out that what we thought was going to be a really rainy weekend, push everything back. We might not be racing until Monday was what I'd heard many times leading up to the race. Didn't turn out to be the fact, bit of a delay on Saturday, but anyways, got in, Got the race. There you go. Uh, Weather was clear. Weather was good. Uh, Everything was perfectly fine and capable for Sunday. What I don't understand is why there was no dutiful effort or attempt to do it. Uh, Is it a TV thing? Could we not be on Peacock? Was, Was that not in the contract to turn on and show this via live streaming? Don't know. Is that a reason to not hold qualifying? I don't know. Um, It makes me wonder if there will be a more thorough review of the processes that got them to that decision. So why did they not do it? Well, it is an easy thing to trigger. Hey, rain, starting on points. It's a well-known thing can't mess it up off we go what happens if the fear if the thing that impacted race one well yeah but there's no real impacting a race two you know 
Um, what have we've seen a variety of things used in the past, right? For a, a double, Hey, double header in terms of qualifying. Hey, your first flying lap sets you for race one, your second flying lap sets you for race two or the other, you know, you could play with a lot of ways that this will make things happen in terms of setting a grid. If you lose the chance to qualify, uh, for the first race though, should there be the, well, we're just going to trigger the start on entrant points and hey, we'll see you 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Sunday. Does make me wonder, right? Alexander raised a great point. We did not a whole lot of nothing. We certainly could have gone out and qualified. We certainly had the weather and time to set the grid based on on-track merit not how the first two races ended up uh, for the first race and then evolve that from there for the second race in terms of points. But it's a great question, and I do wonder if it was just a case of, hey, this is a well-known and easy process to follow. That's what we did. That's what we did. Um, I'm sure some reasons could be brought up as to why it wasn't done on Sunday. I think what I'm getting at here is, of course I could be missing something, but I have a feeling like it'd be pretty easy to poke any holes in the reason for it to not happen on Sunday. Now, you know, the universe is a pretty interesting thing. If we'd had qualifying and Alexander had qualified higher up in the field and Scott Dixon was still first and our man Alex Polo was still second and we had some sort of concertina effect and it was still Pietro or someone else at the back hitting somebody causing this big crash. Could all that have happened? Maybe, maybe not. Again, who knows? Uh, pretty random uh, thing that happened. Does that just mean that other people not named Alexander Rossi got taken out? Possibly. Again, uh, there's no way to predict what have happened, what would have happened, because nothing different happened. We've only seen this happen once. There's no way saying, well, if we throw in a variable it's going to change things in this way. We cannot possibly say that. I know that someone on Twitter tried to tell me that, well, if we had qualifying, he would have done up here and this would have that, and there's no way this could have ever happened. This crash could have ever happened because it would have been totally different. And so therefore, yes, if qualifying had happened, none of this would have happened uh, with this crash coming to the green flag. Can't say that unless you're from the future. So, all I can do here is work off what they did. And it sure exposed the fact that maybe a more rigorous evaluation to look at how and when you waive things, waving that off, going to go to this procedure. We're going to start the race on points. Um, if you have a chance to put on a show, if you've taken the time to get there, weather allowing, time allowing, I think, I think, given the opportunity to do it over again, or if we were going back to Texas this coming weekend for a doubleheader and was faced with the same scenario, I think IndyCar would act differently. I think they would put on a show for qualifying Sunday morning. Um, hell, other than that, I don't know. Uh, you know me. I'll come up with all kinds of ideas on how we can set the grid in something that's a little more interesting whether it's a uh, lumberjack WWE match, um, 
I mean, we can come up with all kinds of ideas. Just want to see a little bit of fun and uh, variability there. Uh, appreciate a The second race seemed racier than the first, but why? Is it race length strategy? Uh, were teams holding back a little in race one? And did track temperatures and more rubber play a role? You know, I mean, there was some some passy-ish type stuff taking place in the first race, definitely behind uh, uh, the, the Ganassi cars. But you would be pretty smart, I would say, to say yes, certainly more rubber, race two. Uh, would also say that definitely got a better read for setups for race two. So coming off of one race, going into another would say that, yes, teams that were maybe lacking a little bit of something were able to find a little bit more, make their cars a little bit better. Uh, also have drivers, a lot of knowledge that they just gained on Saturday, what worked where and what didn't. Uh, you can factor that in for sure. Also say that we had a little bit of plunging fortunes, for example, with... Uh, Scott Dixon, right? Car just wasn't as crisp as the the latter stages of the second race got here. All of a sudden, on top of some amazing driving and strategy and pit stops, we had Newgarden, we had Award, we had Graham Rahal pressuring hard, we had Jack Harvey here, we had a bunch of good stuff going on. Um, there were some others whose fortunes were rising a little bit more, and so. Whereas race one was 100% processional, owned by Ganassi, race two less so. A little bit better track, better understanding on setups. Uh, we also had some teams going a little bit opposite direction on setup as the race went on. That gave us some variability, Rishi, that wasn't there at the front of the pack so much um, in race one. If we're talking about truly contending for the win. So, yeah. Uh, I think you throw all those things in and it's not a total surprise that uh, we had a, a race two that was what it was, but you know, let's just be thankful for Pato Ward. <laughs> if Pato had been the one who had a wheel bearing or whatever and knocked him out at the halfway point, whether it's new garden, whether it's Dixon, whether it was Graham, whatever, you know, someone else would have won obviously but i don't think any of us would be talking about did you see what that kid did holy crap um that kid made some memories for folks who didn't get a lot of them the day before uh and also at least through the first half you know two-thirds of sunday's race and i'm not complaining by the way about ganassi kicking everyone's ass uh, they kind of are good at doing that so just saying purely from an entertainment standpoint I'm thankful that we had some variables on Sunday later in the race that we sure did not on Saturday. Uh, Daniel Summerskill is back. What was your take on the Harvey and Ray Hall clash in race one? On first viewing, it looked marginal, but the replays looked like a hard but fair move by Harvey trying to defend position. Good to see him not being bullied by the big teams and standing up for the smaller teams. I saw it the same way. Uh, it looked like the two of them turned their steering wheels to the left at the same split second. And can I tell you if Graham's steering wheel turned one millimeter to the left before Jack did or vice versa? I can't tell you. I did not see anything 
on the replays that told my eyes that Jack moved in reaction. I know Graham feels otherwise. I wouldn't disagree with him. I wasn't in his car. I can only say from the the camera angles that I saw that I assume are the same that y'all saw. It looked like these two guys did the same thing at the same time. And that's where this is a non-foul. Had Jack been behind and turned his steering wheel just enough later to go, oh, yeah, well, even if he wasn't looking at his rearview mirror, let's just say, oh, you know, the left side of the track, that's pretty cool. I haven't been over there. Oh, why don't I go check it out? Oh, randomly. Hey, Graham Rail is trying to pass me. Kidding, but if there was something that stood out that said, yeah, the guy moved in reaction to Graham trying to pass him, I think our eyes, I think more people would be saying, yes, Harvey did a bad thing and should be penalized. IndyCar also flagged that for review and said no action. So what do you get in a lot of sports where the athletes are really mad at the refs? It's the didn't you see it? And I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of the times the thing that we see on the television in front of us where you go oh my god that's just a blatant foul and you're why aren't they calling it you see the player or the ref yell at the ref i'm sorry the player or the coach yell at the ref why aren't you blowing the whistle it's not uncommon for them to say i didn't see it right i don't hate you i'm not trying to ignore what i I didn't see it i'll blow the whistle if i see it i didn't see it i'm sorry i might have been looking in a different direction or Maybe I just didn't see the thing you're saying took place. I don't, my eyes didn't see what your eyes saw. I am confident that IndyCar race control would absolutely penalize a Jack Harvey or anyone else. If they saw that they moved in reaction, the fact that they didn't would suggest since they did review it, it wasn't a, Oh, we don't, we, sorry, missed it, and we don't have the ability to replay. They absolutely reviewed it, as we were told, and said there's no action here. If that happens and the the refs go, sorry, not a foul, doesn't mean the player isn't pissed and feel like their grievances isn't being heard. But what do you want to do? Um, so I'll leave that there. Uh, Jack not being bullied. Yeah, I love that. Loved his description in our guest show. Don't underestimate British drivers in that regard. I'm not saying they're, it's the only you know country of people who are not very good at being pushed over. Just saying, I've known a lot of British drivers, a lot of British people. And yeah, uh, if you're thinking they're going to be the one to back down, take a knee, bend the knee here, please, after you. Uh, yeah, that's not the way most British people I know are wired. So Jack pushing back saying, no, man, uh, uh, nope. I loved it. I just loved it. And I hope he doesn't change. Just hopefully he doesn't put his kind of sort of teammates on the grass. Uh, let's go to Jake Ward says, would Scott Dixon or Joseph Newgarden have been called to the holler if they'd performed the same maneuvers as Jack, the Baker Harvey, uh, to my knowledge, Jack wasn't called to the IndyCar holler. If that's what we're talking about. Um, if he was again, I 
missed it apparently, but if Dixon did that or New Garden did that, do I think if IndyCar was wanting to have a conversation or set a tone, do I think they would do it with them? Yeah. Do I think they'd be a little more interested in doing it with someone like a Harvey who's young and you don't want bad habits to set in? Again, we're talking theoretical stuff because they didn't call him to the hall or to my knowledge. They didn't penalize him, et cetera, et cetera. But do I think there might be a stronger effort to put the smack down on some of the younger drivers so uh, that policy is set? Yes. Have we seen Dixon penalized for things in the past where you go, ooh, really? Okay. You're calling that? Okay. Wow. All right. Well, this is a another proof that uh, we're, we're getting a little bit serious here. Um, I think so. Uh, I think so. I'll just leave it there, Jake. I could go a lot deeper on this, but I want to get to as many questions as I can before we say fair. Well, Ross Porter, MP first off, reflecting this afternoon, remembering the amazing impact Uncle Bobby had so many facets of the sport. This is after seeing Connor Daly get upside down. It made me wonder about the roll hoop and arrow screen damage sustained. Does IndyCar require um, uh, anything or any hour limitation or, or cycle usages, say, for such things, uh, or say non-destructive testing on certain structural components like tubs and roll hoops, or is this at each team's discretion? Also, are teams qualified? to perform composite repairs to a tub without shipping the unit back to Delara. A lot of good stuff in here, Ross. I'll get through it quickly. Um, we're talking about roll hoop damage, aero screen damage, and whatnot to Connor's car. IndyCar's technical team will be waiting in the garage before the cars even get back after a crash like this. They're brought back on the wrecker and dropped off they're usually right there with their whether it's their cell phone to take photos or an actual handheld you know true dedicated handheld camera uh do any video if they might want to do that uh there they are there right away to assess damage on such things especially when it's a indie car part an aero screen is an indie car part if a car is a crash and it rips, you know, the left rear corner off, not saying guys from IndyCar might not wander out and take a look, but eh, that's kind of normal grist of the mill repair type stuff. When you get into the safety systems, for sure, you're going to have Tino Belli and Bill Pappas and all, you know, Bill Van Zant and who knows how many people rocket wander over if and when they're available. Some of them might be on pit lane uh, during a race doing things, but for sure. There's going to be folks descending, photographing, taking a look, and certainly in some cases, uh, you know for sure they're going to say, hey, could you, you know, it doesn't have to happen right now, but when you get back to Indy, can you drop that off? We'd like to take a deeper look at it. When it comes to non-destructive testing, other parts of the chassis say that's very much up to the team. Question about uh, tub repairs, for example. I can't tell you if every team has the same level of composites expertise and repair capabilities. They, you know, no team is identical to one another in terms of that. Some shops are bigger, have more equipment. Uh, you know, some 
really do a lot of their own work. Others do not. There are experts for sure. Aerodyne being one of them. Um, there are composite experts who make a living, not so much in modern years, but there's still some good folks who are capable of, Hey, could you pop over to our team and help, uh, repair this, fix that. Delara for sure can play a role there. We're talking bigger things. Hey, we do need a tub repair. And I'm not talking about, up. Oh, got a little nick, a little small hole from a piece of debris that flew back and hit whatever. Something like that. Again, inspecting, making sure that it didn't do any, any real structural damage. I would believe most teams are more than capable of fixing that there on their own. But anything where you go, eh, okay, that, that's a little more serious... That's where the sucker gets stripped down and gets sent to either a uh, Aerodyne, maybe a Delara. Um, most teams don't have big old autoclaves, uh, big every kind of setups possible to do big piece uh, type of repair. But the smaller stuff, for sure, they do. Uh, where are we going next? Where are we going next? Uh, Vincent Anderson asking about Pato going to Formula One. Uh, says he gets to test an F1 car at the end of the year. How worried should we be that he will go to F1 like Bourdais, Montoya, Zanardi, and Michael Andretti? I don't feel like it's something we should be fearing, Vincent. If you look at the team he'll be testing with, that being McLaren F1, has a pretty significant star in Daniel Ricciardo there, winner of many Grand Prix. A pretty darn big name profile-wise as well, among the most popular in F1. Uh, new to the team, obviously. Had a decent start to the year. I don't know if I'd say brilliant. Then you got the young gun, basically British Pato, <laughs> Lando Norris. And I can only see them holding on to that kid forever, unless he gets some amazing opportunity from an even bigger team in the future. I don't foresee much change happening there. And maybe the bigger point here, what I understand is they have Pato under a five-year contract, Air McLaren SP. Whether that's five full years or three with an option for the final two or one-year options subsequent after that. Again, who knows how it's made up. But I've heard it's a five-year deal. Heard about that for a little while. Okay. This is a kid who can clearly have them running even farther up front, finished fourth for them as a full-season rookie last year, uh, <laughs> right? Do you try and move him over to F1 now-ish, uh, soon-ish, while you have two guys who should be winning races for the McLaren F1 team as soon as they're ready to win? Or do you say, hey, we have this asset who could be pretty amazing in F1 if needed, but what about winning this IndyCar championship, this Indy 500. What about being number one in IndyCar and having one, if not two guys who could potentially be number one in Formula One if we're able to match and beat Red Bull and Mercedes? I would just say, Vincent, don't underestimate how important someone like Pato and his teammate Felix Rosenquist, who's had a terrible start to the year, don't underestimate how important it is for Arrow, McLaren, S, and P to be the best IndyCar team there is. And letting their number one driving asset go to F1 when it really isn't needed, 
I don't think Zach Brown would try and engineer that right now. And, you know, unless Daniel Ricardo retires at the end of the year. Um, you know, I just don't see anything like this happening unless it was a really strange circumstance. But it would come at robbing the IndyCar team from its best chance of being a title winner. And, yeah, um, I just don't foresee that being allowed to happen because it wouldn't be in the best interest of either business. Uh, Jared Roberts, Alexander Shepard. Jared, you say, Marshall, could the higher-than-normal heat Sunday have affected the wheel-bearing in Jack Harvey's car? I only asked because Colton had the same issue Saturday night and the tire temps are a lot cooler then. Uh, my fault here, Jared, I'll be honest with the things that happened on Monday to derail things. I normally spend Mondays doing a pretty deep dive of all the things that happened over the previous weekend. It's why I haven't done my kind of, I think they're calling it the cool down lap or slow down lap, my brain dump column on racer. I haven't even started to write it, brother. Uh, that's normally out Monday, if not Tuesday at the latest. And I usually spend Mondays pouring through all the little minutiae like this, reading, texting, calling, asking questions to figure out what exactly happened. I don't know exactly what happened to Colton's car. I saw what happened on TV. I saw that there was a belief that there was a brake problem. I don't know exactly what the cause was. If it was indeed a wheel bearing, then there's that happening. Uh, I think on Jack's car, as it appeared, it just looked like a wheel bearing failure. Uh, that car is not prepared by Andretti Autosport. It's prepared, owned by and prepared by Myershank Racing. So I think on the broadcaster was a mention that uh, Andretti had something to do with it. No, they didn't. Um, if we're talking temperatures, I would say then let's look for trends. And in a race of 24 cars, six of which we basically lost before the start, but of the remaining 18 cars, one had a wheel bearing failure. So I would say if heat was the issue the numbers would have told us because we would have had multiple, multiple cars with wheel bearing failures. I don't know the cause, but I would say it stood out as an isolated issue. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily connect it to any external uh, ambient event or similar. Alexander Shepard, hey, MP, I was hoping you could shed some light on the specifics of a partnership like the one between Andretti and Marshank Racing, giving the similarities in their wheel bearing failures, etc. Uh, what parts and technical data does Marshank Racing receive from Andretti? And at what point do they use that as a foundation but make their own changes? So dampers and setup information. Uh, that's all that I understand the relationship to include. There's no requirement for Meyershank Racing to make setup changes that Andretti does. There's no one at Andretti telling them you must change this wing setting or your right height to the, none of that. Uh, but this is, if we're talking about a small team, uh, not having all the answers to the test, that's kind of what happens with small newish teams, right? They don't have all that experience. They don't know all this stuff. Being able to plug into a big team that does that setup information. Plus they also use, uh, have, engineers from Andretti who are doing the race engineering on Jack's car. Um, they have the autonomy to make whatever changes they decide. Just the starting point, like I said, kind of the, a lot of the best answers to the test 
they start with that, have that, it ensures that they're in a pretty good place when they do indeed hit the track and start running. Uh, mechanically, though, no. Um, this is uh, what happened Sunday, totally unrelated between both teams. I'm going to take a sip of water here. Ricky Zagata says, Marshall, was Ed Carpenter racing? Uh, even racing this weekend, two races, not a single mention or time on TV. I thought I saw Ed mentioned in there for sure. I thought I saw Renus mentioned in there for sure. I do recall seeing their vehicle shown on television. So um, that's that. It didn't have a great weekend, unfortunately. I know that Renus uh, appeared to run fairly well. Is that even necessary to say anymore? <laughs> Right? I mean, he finished, I know that Saturday wasn't everything they'd hoped for, obviously, but I think he finished, what, 8th, ninth, something like that on Sunday? Um, it seems like Renus is just in a pretty darn good place uh, with how things are going for him. But, yeah, uh, I mean, it seemed like Ed had some things going for him. Sunday a little bit better, obviously. Uh, you know, having to start way back. Certainly didn't help with the whole uh, entrant points thing. So if you consider the where he finished, made similar progress both days, right? Obviously got to remove those six cars on Sunday. Um, seems like he had an okay weekend. Not great, but okay. And man, coming off of last year, seems like okay is not too bad of a thing. So yeah, they weren't threatening anybody for a podium, but it, did seem to me like they weren't that bad, Ricky. May, I could be wrong, but, you know, I, I say that all the time because uh, it's always a pretty high possibility that I am wrong. Uh, let's see. John Bailey, you know, long-time listener, first time sending in a question. Thank you. It says, condolences to the Unser family. Best wishes to you, your wife, and the cats. Hey, this is a cat-free episode, by the way. Uh, a rarity. He says, uh... Didn't get this question for last week's show, so I said again, regarding the Indy Light Series, is there any way the racing could be, quote, spiced up? As in St. Pete, after the first corner, it was pretty much a parade both days. The exception of a few dive bomb passes can push to pass be added. Uh, maybe have Cooper Cooper tires mess with the compounds to get more degradation. I'm not sure what the answer is, but uh, the comments in the stands of St. Pete was, eh, the lights races were a snooze fest certainly could john you know all those things are our options i'm the kind of guy who spent enough time in racing on the engineering side looking at all kinds of things staring at computers staring at data trying to spot things we're gonna have a stinker or two or three each year in every series if not more right uh whether it's indycar lights usf 2000 indy pro etc we're going to have some where you go, oh, that wasn't great. Texas, a little bit different. We came off one last year that wasn't great. It's been a little while since we had a great one, so there's a little bit of a trend there. I would just say that, you know, uh, I don't recall Barber being a super snooze fest. Um, it would be something to follow for sure and consider proposing some of the items you mentioned if we got into a sustained rut. Not great for... Indy Lights come back to St. Pete after a year away and not put on much of a show. 
truth be told, they're not really there to be the entertainment in that capacity. You really would think that'd be more on the IndyCar level. I mean, these are kids trying to learn, trying to win, trying to dominate, uh, get recognized by teams for making a snoozer out of stuff. But just say, at least for how my head works, John, of course you never want to talk about, boy, those are pretty boring. If we're talking about a weekend and we're not talking about multiple weekends in a row, I would say I I wouldn't hit the got to make some changes button quite yet. But it's certainly something you're always wanting to watch and see if, uh, yeah, if things either trend in the right direction there or if they stay in a not super happy groove. Uh, let's see. Ed Roberts, for once, the cartoon anvil was largely dodged by Ryan Hunter Ray this past weekend, only to fall into each of his Andretti teammates and Jack Harvey. When is Roger Wark going to pay to cartoon anvil graphic with interchangeable targets for you to use each week? You know, I was thinking about that because I needed to get some going for Rossi and I forgot to ask. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, just about everyone else um, within the team needed one. Uh, Justin Ford, talking about driver cooling. Why is it taking so long for cool shirts to make it into cars? I'm guessing you're talking about Indy cars. I've been using them for years in amateur endurance racing. The new systems don't even require water and ice changeouts. I know the size and weight isn't ideal to package into existing cars, but I feel that the performance loss from a tiring driver outweighs the small disadvantage. I love it, Justin, when... Awesome folks like yourself send in questions and then answer them at the same time you're asking. Um, Amateur endurance racing, so I'm unaware of open-wheel endurance racing, so that would indicate some sort of sports car, which would indicate a passenger seat type area or something similar, a larger side pod you could stuff something in. We don't have those in IndyCar. Um, you mentioned, I know the size and weight isn't ideal to package everything that I wrote about in the article about driver cooling and the fact that to take this problem that has emerged for some IndyCar drivers and their ability to manage their body heat, reject that heat and stay at an okay temperature when things get really hot due to the aero screen blocking uh, high speed on rushing wind from hitting them air. This is something where Andretti Autosport, and again, I believe I wrote one other team as well. I don't know the identity of that team, but told there's another team said we need to step in and develop our own. And I'm not saying they did it all hundred percent by themselves. I'm sure that there's some comp- componentry from something that's an existing system, but why haven't people done it before? Well, AeroScreen just appeared last year, so there's that. Season was very delayed and abbreviated and weird, so there's that. Workforce and staffing, kind of weird. Keep in mind that for pretty much all last season, folks are working in shifts, limited rotations coming in and out, uh, not having the entire workforce come in and, and do things like this. So really wasn't something that was an option last year. Uh, through the off season and things getting a little bit better in terms of workforce, uh, more numbers and people coming together this year, uh, I would then say not a surprise that really the first non-massive COVIDly, COVIDly, COVID impacted uh, preparation for the season. Well, uh, 
one team, if not two teams, said, hey, we need to innovate here, and we have the time and ability to do it with staff, and they did. So the question as to why is it taking so long, just maybe consider the fact that this wasn't so much of an option last year for reasons we all know about with COVID, and the moment that it did become possible, they did. Uh, Let's see, going to roll back up here. What are we at? About an hour 45. All right, I'll take a couple more here. Uh, let's see. Where do we go? Rosenquist and bad luck. Daniel Summersgill, James Lau. James, you say, do you think if Felix doesn't improve in a measurable way, his IndyCar career may be over? All I've heard from the team is this guy's not going anywhere. We believe in him. If you look at how Sunday went, James, yeah. Uh, reasons not of his own making. He definitely seems like he could have been top three, four, five, something like that. So I think he was all ready to get his season on track, and then the cartoon anvil hit him. Not his own fault there. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, I decided to ask this question before Sunday's race. It seems even more relevant now. Should IndyCar allow teams to shake down a car that's been repaired if there's no session between the accident and the race start? It's my understanding the reason Hinch had to retire and miss so many laps was due to something being missed during the rebuild. My suggestion is on a safety basis, not a competitive basis. Heard similar about that. Uh, Rishi, you're asking whose responsibility is it to do a bolt check and how's that go over at the shop Monday morning? Heard similar. uh, Having to just kind of go with the questions being asked as factual or, or correct, not stating they are correct, but just pivoting off of your questions to try and respond to them. You have mechanics in charge of various parts of the car. To my knowledge, I can't think of any team that has a crew chief who then goes around to every nut and bolt uh, with a torque wrench and socket and uh, the complementing wrench to go through and double check everyone's work nose to tail uh you have your front end mechanics your gearbox mechanic rear end mechanic etc um everybody's in charge of a fairly specific area that is theirs so you have individual responsibility for those areas you then of course it's the head coach thing right you go well the crew chief is in charge of the whole car so if there's a problem you know, most people don't know the name of the guy who's in charge of tightening all the bolts on the right front corner of James Hinchcliffe's car or left front. And that's, again, not speaking anything negative about them. I'm just saying profile-wise. Crew chiefs tend to be the ones whose names, if you know them among the mechanics, it's often about the only name you know for each entry. Um, so they will be the ones ultimately held responsible. Got it. Are they the ones who should have gone around and double-checked the torque on everything or that things were just tightened? No, it's not how the structure works, but they're ultimately responsible for it. As for how things go in terms of getting a car ready to go back on track, should there be some sort of competitive safety check? If you think of a crash and, hey, you tore whatever portion of the car off, and you thrashed to put new parts back in place to get back in the race. The thrash is a little bit of a concern, right? 
uh, if you're working very quickly to try and minimize how many laps you lose, say it's a smallish crash. I think that happened at Portland a couple of years ago. There was an effort to repair something kind of just behind pit lane, uh, behind the pit wall, and there was an effort there. It was I don't know if it was Hunter Ray's car. It feels like it might have been. Maybe it was Rossi's, whomever's. Um, if there's a boy, if we really bust ass and the crash isn't too big, we can get out, maybe only lose a lap or two, maybe we get it back under yellows, right? There's a real reason to just go nuts, uh, time and speed and whatever-wise. Okay, those are pretty rare. And in most of those instances, depending on whatever team, you're going to have a veteran go, hey, 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 we already lost the race, okay? I'm not saying you take it slow, but I do it right. I'm more interested in right than fast. So you can expect that to happen. That's a pretty common thing. If there's an instance of it looks like folks are rushing when they shouldn't. So you usually have that veteran voice. Hey, still a chance of missing something. And so whether it's doing a recovery from a crash or just reassembling the car, this happens every day. Uh, whether it's the back end of the car coming off, front suspension, uh, this or that, part of the suspension might not be the whole thing. Every day, these cars are coming apart and going back together more than once. And it doesn't have to be a huge, like, oh my gosh, look, (laughs) all the Legos got dumped out of the box and we got to put the whole thing back together. Not saying it's like that every day for every car, but there's unbolting and rebolting going on with every car every day. So with that in mind, having to replace a broken right rear corner. It's not out of the ordinary for what might happen on a daily basis. Uh, and again, it might not be the right rear corner that gets taken apart normally. It could be another part, but the on and off stuff, untighten, retighten, happens multiple times every day. Missing a bolt should never happen. Unfortunately, well, actually, fortunately, we don't have robots doing these jobs. I think I recounted a tale a couple weeks ago about missing a bolt on a car, and it cost money for sure. Thankfully, didn't total the car, didn't hurt the driver, whatever. Uh, this wasn't an Indy car. This is a much lower circumstance in terms of a championship, but I've been there. It's happened. It should never happen. It does. Do you set a whole process in place for if you crash and you have to rebuild something, you have to go out and do whatever lap, shake down thing, come back in, and then we sh- we observe you, recheck all the nuts and bolts before you go out and race? If that's the case, that would need to happen at the start of lap one of every practice session. Um, maybe barring the first session itself, because unless something strange happens, like an engine change needs to go down at the track on the setup day, pretty much the cars come out of the trailer ready to go. But for the most part, if this were to be applied during the race after a crash, owed to the familiarity of the same processes that are happening with the on and off aspect, it then need to happen pretty much going into every session. And first lap would have every car come in and a checking of everything and an observation of everything. So, Coming back to that, do we drastically change how we do starts on ovals? And because on limited occasion we have crashes due to start line funniness, 
I look at the numbers and go, no, it doesn't happen frequent enough for us to say it's an epidemic. Therefore, tune and fix the things that aren't working within the system. Don't throw the system away. Here, it's the same exact thing, Ryan. These kinds of things happen on a very rare basis. So there's no need to throw away the accepted practice of you're all professionals. We expect you to do a fine job of preparing your cars and just keep doing that. So don't think so. Don't think we need to change anything here. Um, where do we, and as for how does this go over Monday morning, Rishi, you know, uh, depends on the culture of the team. The person who missed the thing feels like hell. That's just natural. If they don't fire them, get rid of them. Uh, they shouldn't be there if they aren't seriously worried and bothered about making that mistake. You as a team manager, crew chief, whatever, should not have to say a word to that person after that happened because they should be managing themselves and apologizing and buying everybody donuts and whatever and uh, making sure that they are letting it known that I know how much I screwed up. I can never let that happen again, and I am going to make sure that I, I quadruple check everything. Right? If self-governance isn't happening, get rid of the person. Um, if excuses come, get rid of the person. I don't think that's an issue here with an IndyCar, but yeah, uh, it's the person who made the mistake who comes in Monday morning hating life. Uh, let's see. Going to close here on a couple of quick ones. Uh, Cody Oakwood, MP, uh, great work on your three-parter regarding the Texas TMS debacle. Thanks, man. Uh, in the final article, you have a quote where Max Pappas claims, I think the race pace would have been in the 210-mile-an-hour uh, range. I don't think it would have been at 230. It's such a drop-off in speed. Uh, realistic, you asked. Assume that comment was made within the context of the cars not being altered and there being a natural reduction in the pace from qualifying. That's how I interpreted it, Cody. Where Max has a point, but also doesn't have a point, is yes. Tire degradation as we see at Texas every year during a however many laps stint. You go, look at that. The opening laps are at some very high, high speed. Whenever they come back out of the pits on fresh tires, it's high, high speed. Halfway through towards the end, oh, those are low, low speeds. You know, 204, 205, we were seeing that pretty much was the norm. You start getting towards the end of a stint, those tires are are ragged. And, yeah, you're 15 miles an hour off the pace. Uh, I would absolutely expect that to happen if this race had gone forward in 2001. It's just the norm. The problem being it wasn't going to be that way from the outset. So with everything that was spoken about, all the quotes given that, hey, uh, it hit some people sooner, some people later, some people not at all, but the high Gs sustained for 10, 15, 20, whatever laps over about 228 miles an hour, this is where people started having G-related problems, vision problems, cognitive issues, dang near passing out one did for a brief period max's claims i don't disagree he would they would have absolutely happened how long would it have taken though could the field have done three laps at 230 and then tires start falling off and you're down to 225 if that had happened the race 
in theory, could have gone off without a problem because I don't think three laps above 228 or whatever the number was, realistically, it was not going to have everybody, you know, getting knocked out from uh, excessive Gs. But how many laps would that have taken? Uh, Nick Manassian was saying he could not complete a 22, 25-lap run, which, you know, what would that have been? Half a stint, uh, a third of a stint, whatever it would have, you know, whatever the number would have been, he struggled getting to that point. And if we assume that the tires would stay pretty darn competitive for maybe half of a stint, again, just theorizing here, you could see where those arguing against racing would say, with no technical changes, if we were to go out and go racing, we're definitely going to be dropping speed. Where does that happen, though? And do these physical problems that could lead to massive crashes and potential fatalities, does that take place before the tire fall-off happens? So just got to consider that. Uh, kind of you for the note there, and kind of you for everyone who sent in uh, nice things about the uh, the story. Really enjoyed putting it together. Took an insane amount of time, far more than I expected. Um, not everybody who was mentioned in the article loved it, but you know, you know that before you write it, it it always works. You always know, like, all right, this person, that person's going to send along a fu gram, and you know, uh, not a surprise, but. That's life, right? Nobody ever loves, ev- not every single person loves everything. So I'm glad the majority of you uh, appeared to enjoy it. Uh, Rossi on the market, Ruffles12 from Reddit. If Rossi were to leave Andretti at the end of the year, do you think he'd have an interest of Penske or Aaron McLaren SP like he did at the end of 2019 when he was a coveted free agent? I think if Simon Pagano uh, is not involved in Team Penske's program, in 2022 IndyCar program, I would have to believe Roger's trend of trying to go for the best he can get would certainly include Rossi. I mean, wouldn't most of you, I realize not all of you are fans of Rossi or or whomever, but if you're Roger Penske and you decide you want to make a change, you look for who and what's available. I don't know if Alexander would be available, but if he, if there was a way to get him, would he be the guy whose door you were knocking on among, you know, if you can inquire and see if a, you know, is Pato available? I'm sure he wouldn't make him available, but Rossi stands out as someone that Penske would certainly like. We've been saying that for years. Uh, Justin Holmes, do you see any changes coming soon to Andretti? Uh, you got drivers 15th, 17th, and 19th in points. Well, this comes back to Justin, the who's there and how are they there? So Alexander Rossi is certainly not low in points because he is a poor race car driver. So if Andretti were to decide our drivers are in a low position, um, who would you replace Alexander Rossi with? Right. These are some of the practical questions we should ask ourselves. Alexander Rossi is 15th in the standings. Um, would we say that he's 15th because of his talent? Somehow he's forgotten how to drive a race car and drive it well. Yeah, I don't think we'd say that. So I don't know how or why anyone at Andretti would say, well, we need to get rid of him because he's low in the points. Uh, if you look at who's in 17th, 
that being Ryan Hunter Ray. It's not had a great year. It's had some cartoon anvil. Also had some not, you know, fully on the pace. Not finding all the setup things they want. Not having the right strategy go their way, etc. That's been a rough start to the year, without a doubt. And I can't put that all down to the cartoon anvil. I don't think he would as well. But he hasn't forgotten how to drive. So he's there with a sponsor that wants him there. Alexander Rossi is there with sponsors that want him there. Um, Something to keep in mind. Uh, The last one, 19th place, James Hinchcliffe. He's had a brutal start to the year. Uh, I don't know how else to say that. He's had a brutal start to the year. He is there through the efforts he and his... Uh, people have made to find sponsorship, brought that to the team. He's there. Uh, he's not an, in, quote, invited guest, meaning yeah, you can come stay, but we're going to get rid of you if we don't like you. He, he is in a position that he has gone out and brought sponsorship to secure. So how do you change that? Um, so just speaking out loud, um, who would you change? Who would you replace Rossi with, Hunter Ray with, Hinchcliffe with? Knowing that in two of those three, they have sponsors that are very committed to those specific drivers, been with them for many years. In the case of Hinch returning, the season cannot continue this way, right? It can't keep staying this bad. Uh, he hasn't forgotten how to drive, so things have to get better. It's just the natural order says so. Uh, but he's there because he has brought the sponsorship to be there. So, uh, you know, we, there's some precedent last year with Zach Veach being parked, etc. I get all that. But um, I would say that that would probably have been an educational uh, situation for Hinch to observe and go, well, hey, if I am indeed able to come back and do this full time and bring the budget to do that, I'm going to make sure that my contract says there is no chance in hell this vehicle goes on track with my sponsors on it if I'm not in it. So they've had a bad start to the year. Uh, Whether it's them having a bad start to the year, whether it is St. Pete having a couple of boring Indy Lights races, whether it is this, that, or the other, would say not going to hit the make the change button yet. Um, let's see if these things just ride out to be more situational than all encompassing. So I'd say no on that front. Uh, where do we go here to close? All right, two to go. Nick Dovniak, AMP with Penske tipped for a, uh, LMDH program in the near future. You must've sent this in before the announcement. Uh, what are the chances we see Simon, signed to some kind of bridge contract until that starts up and then slide them over to sports cars uh, to be part of that. Well, we need to say congratulations to Simon, by the way, he and his wife, Haley gave birth to their son, uh, mentioned on the sports car show. He told me about that a couple months ago, asked me to keep it quiet as I think he told many people to keep it quiet. So, uh, hopefully that was a nice surprise for many of you. As I also mentioned on the sports car show, Simon being one of the weirder people you will meet, Gotta love the fact that the race car driver, probably best known for his dog, brings the dog into victory lane at the Indy 500 and whatnot. The guy 
the IndyCar driver who names his dog after a human, uh, Norman, the dog, then names his firstborn child after a dog, um, Marley. So Norman, the dog, Marley, the boy. Uh, you gotta love Simon Pagino. And indeed, he didn't name his son after the fictional dog Marley from whatever that Jennifer Aniston movie was. Uh, he's a big lover of Bob Marley. So that's just even adds another layer to the delightfully strange world of Simon Pagino. Congratulations to he and Haley and their new son. So congrats to him. I do believe, was it Ryan Terpstra maybe or Andy Merrick? I forget who. Uh, tweeted about, hey, boy, this new uh, Porsche Penske Motorsport uh, LMDH IMSA program sure seems like something that'd be perfect for Pagano in the future in 2023 when it kicks off. I believe he liked that tweet. I don't know what's going to happen with him and Team Penske and IndyCar. I wish I did. Did I mention last week that I asked? Uh, I don't remember if I brought this up. And for those of you who are listening, who heard me possibly, I apologize. Is this just my brain's not capturing a lot of things right now? Um, I asked, uh, maybe one of these days I'll tell you how it went. Wasn't good. Um, boy, if we were to predict that Simon Pagino will be driving for Roger Penske for many years to come, most likely moving over to sports cars, most likely being an integral part of testing and developing this new Porsche LMDH machine uh, with Penske. If I'm the guy making those decisions at Team Penske, that's what I dictate. Say, hey, you want to leave and go to another team? Totally your choice. We don't have a contract to keep you after this year. But if you want to stay with us, we'd love to have you, but we do want to move you over. And we want to bring you back each year for the Indy 500 because you can win that every year, and that's amazing. But this timing works out. We're, what, Simon's 36, 37. He's not old, not old by any means. But this is the kind of opportunity where the timing says you could be the leader of this Penske Porsche LMDH program in IMSA for many years and still chase another sip of milk at the 500. Do I think they would still fit him into the sports car program if uh, he were to drive somewhere for someone else in uh, IndyCar? If he were to leave Penske, go to wherever, uh, I still think Penske would be wise to hire him because that's how good he is in sports cars. But, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, Nick. It would not surprise me at all. Um the fact that they signed Will to an extension before the season and they did not, to my knowledge, with Simon. Barring an Indy 500 win, you just got to wonder uh, if they meant to do it, why haven't they done it? And if they haven't, should we take that as a sign? Uh, Going to close here with a great question. Uh, truly great question. Andy Merrick, by the way, when I say this is a great question, I mean it really is. Uh, our man, Lance Snyder, my minister of mirth for the show, says, so hashtag me personally, had an idea relating to the Indy 500 driver intros with animals. Why not turn it into a coloring book with a version for children and adults? Have Roger Warwick tune it up with each driver on their animals. What say hashtag you personally? I love this, Lance. 
it's so obscure that I think 0.3 people would buy the book for children to use. Um, well, why don't you and Roger just do it anyways? Well, we Roger and I have this somewhat strange affliction where people want money from us so that we can do things like live and have roofs over our head. So I don't have the money to pay Roger to do it, nor does Roger have the time to do it all for free. So I think if there was a market for it, more than a couple of crazy people on my podcast, uh, we'd do it. I love the idea. It's brilliant. I just don't, I can't afford it. I don't think Roger has a spare time to do it all for fun. And then I don't know who's going to publish it, but I love the idea. And as I keep asking drivers for the answers to this question of what in D500 driver intro animal would they bring with them to ride in on, fly in on, uh, float in on, whatever it might be, swim in with, they just keep getting crazier. Jack Harvey's among my favorites. So uh, I will tell you that I have a document, a Word document titled... Indy 500 Animal Driver Intros 2021. And I have been transcribing the answers and pasting them into this document. So, so far, so far, sure. So far, I have Alexander Rossi, Pato Award, Ryan Hunter Ray, Scott Dixon, Simon Pagano, uh, Jack Harvey. I haven't transcribed them yet, but I have Will Power and Jimmy Johnson. And I'll keep asking. So, my goal, and I don't know if it's going to be the full field of 33. We'll see, but I'm going to try and get as many drivers to answer this question as possible. And this will all be in some sort of pre-race document or story. Now, I don't know if any of my clients would have any interest in it or say, you're really just screwed the head, dude. Like, I don't know what you're doing. And no, we're not putting it on our site, but I know the guy who owns two domains, both marshallpruitt.com and marshallpruittpodcast.com. So in the event that uh, everyone else says, no, dummy, uh, I know where I could chuck it up. So one way or the other, we're going to get all these answers pretty much in unedited form, right? Both it responded to and then the back and forth between us with each driver. Um, going to have all that presented, you know, might clean up a little bit if I need, because not everyone speaks in flowing conversational matters, but uh, going to do my best here for you because some of this stuff is just a blast uh hunter ray is immediate response that's a weird question geez and i'm like well yeah right um love this stuff so it's so fun so that's what i'm gonna do uh that doesn't cost any money maybe though maybe i can save up some money and commission roger to do one maybe my favorite driver animal answer and maybe that'll be the lead image for the little story. So there you go. Y'all, thank you. Told you it's going to be a little bit of an overtime episode. Uh, I don't know how many questions we got to. Uh, let me see. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention this. This might be close to an all-time record. 6,045 words worth of questions. And we got to 2,818. So... I, yeah, in the absence of doing a six or seven hour podcast, I hope that this slightly over two hour jam fits your needs coming out of a weekend where it seemed mostly boring and like there'd be nothing to talk about. 
and yet there's everything to talk about. So thanks for sending in your questions. Look forward to speaking with you all next week. Uh, I'm going to truly try and take the next couple days off and just do nothing. Coming off with three straight weekends, going into three more consecutive or four more consecutive weekends. So I'm going to try and dial things down just a little bit. But thanks again for sending all the stuff in. Huge thanks to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. I'll speak to y'all next week. And don't hesitate to uh, celebrate something on Saturday for our fifth anniversary.